On today's episode of the TV Yearbook, we discuss sting operations, being real, and giving good sucker. So don't touch that dial. The TV Yearbook starts now. Well, 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 welcome back to another episode of the TV Yearbook. This is our season one finale, as we've looked this season at mid-1980s crime-fighting shows. I am Greg, one of your delightful hosts. James, another host, tell us a little bit about why we are the TV Yearbook. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) yes, I am James, another delightful host. And we Mm. are the TV Yearbook because in this podcast we are looking at television shows through the lens of today. A retrospective, some might say. The shows we watch and talk about are popular, iconic, or just a good representation of our theme for the season. We choose the best and the worst episodes of the show, we watch it, and we talk about it. Dom! Yo! Do you want to talk about how we choose our shows? Absolutely. I'm Dom, and your third and least awkward host, and... Oh, come on now. (laughs) Let me tell you some things about how do we pick the shows. We get, you know, so many comments out there on our website and Facebook page about how do you guys make these decisions? Well, the answer, dear listener, is the internet. We have an immense stable of highly paid professional researchers coming up with a complicated matrix, evaluating all the comments across vast web pages to decide which episodes are most highly rated by you out there in TV land. This week, our show is one that ran for seven seasons, the highly acclaimed Hill Street Blues. Before we get into the Hill Street Blues, Greg, we've started a tradition here. Tell us uh, what uh, craft soda you've brought with you today. All right. We are moving over across the pond just a little bit for a little Italian blood orange soda. The brand is Villa Italia. And uh, it came in a big bottle. So I went ahead and filled up a cup with some ice cubes. Cubes. And I filled it up. Thank you for clarifying that it's ice cubes. I was thinking ice cones. As opposed to ice flakes. It could be crushed. It could be shaved. It could be like those little balls. Oh, the rabbit turd ice? That's really good ice, Jimmy. I know. Come on. It's the Sonic ice, yeah. I don't understand why. Sonic ice is the best. Why don't all restaurants use that ice? It must be really hard to figure out. Okay, so you do like it, James. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I'm not a psycho. I thought you were upset. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Does this have beet sugar in it? Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll save that but for later. It does later. have some sugar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Hill Street Blues. So this was a police drama that ran on NBC for seven seasons, from 1981 to 1987. The show followed a single police station, Hill Street, and the officers within it. The precinct featured 13, approximate, different characters and ran multiple, multiple storylines throughout a single episode. The show received a total of 98 Emmy nominations during its run and is generally regarded as one of the most influential police shows of all time. Mm. Yeah, I would say, I mean, generally, that's strong. 
It's high praise. Whoa. I don't know. I don't know. Well, uh, so before we talk about the best episode, Greg is going to give us a 90-second recap. Not possible. Oh, gosh. And I don't think this is possible. <laughs> and you can't talk like the Micro Machines speed talker guy. <laughs> Who guest starred in this episode? Uh, no, he no didn't. I don't think so. Uh, I assume he did. Okay. <laughs> All right, start your clocks. No, you can't start the clock yet. Hold on. Those people have sold you a can of pork and beans, buddy. So our best episode from season two, Freedom's Last Stand. So Hill Street Blues is unique because while Captain Farillo and Joyce Davenport, she's the public defender, they're kind of the main characters. The rest of the characters have a lot of different stuff going on. So I'm just going to tell you some different stories and just go, go through those really quick. So story one, there's purse snatchers on the loose in the city. Solution, dress the boys in blue up like women. Time for a sting operation. Later, Officer Henry Goldblum, played by Jesse Spano's dad, Joe Spano, gets robbed while dressed up. He gets into a real bad fight with this mugger, gets banged up, and although he wins, he's upset with crime in the city. He's super excited that he can still fight, though. Story two, pharmacy fraud. Time for a sting operation with officers <laughs> Neil Washington and J.D. LaRue. Fake doctors writing fake prescriptions. They nab a fellow officer, Claire, from a different precinct who's hooked on the pills, and they turn him over to his captain. Story three, a poker match. Every precinct has their champion playing for big money. Hill Street has officer Lucille Bates, who's down and then up and then down and then up until her full house loses to quads. Hill Street basically breaks even after the 30-hour marathon poker session. Uh, after everyone leaves, Lucille's partner, Joe, comforts her after her bad beat and starts to give her a massage, but she says no to any romantical activities. Story four, <laughs> the Sullivan Commission is the city's investigation into finding corruption in the police department. Captain Ferrillo is called before the commission because one of his officers, Delgado, hasn't really been working, but he's been on the payroll. Ferrillo takes one for Delgado, takes one for the team, and stands up for his men right in front of the committee. And finally, story five. So HQ is loaded with perps. And Captain Freedom, oh yes, Captain Freedom brings in another perp. Captain Freedom is a recurring superhero, dressed kind of like the Flash, who's patrolling the streets looking for evildoers. And later, Hill Street decides to run another operation. Hey, what kind of operation, guys? Uh, a sting operation? You got it. Time for a sting operation. This time in a restaurant cracking down on, like, FDA guys, like health official guys looking for bribes. In the climax of the episode, officers Belker, Renko, and Hill are held up by diner robbers. There's like a Mexican standoff, but the robbers head outside. Once they're out there, they're halted by Captain Freedom. They shoot him. Hill Street Blues shoot the robbers, and Captain Freedom dies in Belker's arms in the street. And the episode ends, as most episodes do, with Captain Ferrillo and Joyce Davenport, who are in relationship, talking together. Did I make it under the 90 seconds? Uh, well, I suggest you climb out of that dress, Sugar Ray, and get yourself over to County General. You need stitches. Definitely it not. It felt like an hour. 94 <laughs> seconds. Okay. Let the record state that it was 94 seconds, and it was really close. <laughs> I yeah. don't think so. It was mul Hey, they, they run... This is what happens when you run multiple storylines throughout a single episode. There are a lot of them. I mean, somebody's got to tell them to knock it off. I mean, cut the characters in half or something. Oh, I thought you were talking about the captain, the lawyer, taking a bubble bath at the end. No, I mean, it's like George R. R. Martin is <laughs> writing for this oh, show. much more mild than that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I think maybe this was an influence on his writing. I need a drink of some blood orange soda. These two episodes, I don't know where you guys watched it, but I watched it on Hulu. 
Yes. Uh, so you can check out the show there. This is season two, episode 11. And the worst episode is episode 12. So the best and worst were back-to-back episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we talk about this best episode, can we talk about the theme song? Yes. Go for it. Uh, Greg, I remember last time you said this was your most favorite theme song ever. It's, it's up there, Mr. James. It really is. Explain. Uh, how? How? <laughs> Okay, I had I, I had to do my research for how atrocious this th- this is the worst theme song I've ever heard in my life. What? <laughs> so I had to look up the guy who wrote this. His name is Mike Post. He is a Grammy, Emmy award winning composer. He made theme songs for L.A. Law, NYPD Blue. He's the one responsible for the. <laughs> On Law and Order. Oh, yeah. Him and Dick Wolf are good friends. Yeah. Magnum P.I., great theme song. Magnum P.I., yeah. he wrote theme song for Doogie Howser. Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap. Yeah. Whoa. I mean. And then he pulls this song out of the Advanced Torture Techniques Handbook. <laughs> what the hell? You have got to explain how you can like this theme song. Okay. So... A couple things. First off, he won awards for this theme song, James. I know. And I think that maybe speaks more to the time of the 80s and what was wrong back then than maybe what was right. Well, before I say my piece, because you've said yours, Dom, can you please tie-break us here? Because obviously this is a love-hate theme song. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to split the difference because it was, it. it was a forgettable theme song to me. I mean, I, I can't even remember the tune it's not one that was i didn't watch the show but i certainly didn't hate it i think i read that this is a show where the writers were given you know total creative control over almost every aspect of the show which is i think unusual and they they specifically uh, the creator of the show specifically asked for something that was antithetical to what would be happening as far as as what they were looking for the theme song which i think that was accomplished all I know is that you guys know we play the theme song in our show episodes. Oh, right? yeah. we do. Yeah. I'm worried that everyone has fallen asleep at this point in time listening to our podcast <laughs> after hearing that theme song. It's not that bad. Do you require an exciting Miami Vice-like theme song every time, James? I <laughs> No. You guys, the A-Team is by far the best theme song. No. Oh, yeah. I like the No, the A-Team's not the I don't know I what the best is, but it's definitely... Not this one. I'm remanded to you for slap on the wrist. Don't consider yourself slapped. Anyway, I've said my piece of the theme song. You have. It's garbage. Mike Post, you have made <laughs> many other great things. This was not one of them. Alright, I'll share I'll share my thoughts really quick. Dom, you brought up a really good point about how the series is this is this is a heavy series. I mean there's heavy stuff. There's not a lot of comedy going on within this series. It's it's serious business. And then there's this very calming theme song that's, as you said, Dom, kind of antithetical to what kind of the show is about. I kind of like that. But maybe it's a simpler reason. I mean, I've, I've spent some time on this podcast talking about the childhood a little bit. And do you know what? In the mid-80s, we would hear this song. This song and also another Mike Post song, the L.A. Law theme song 
when the children in the household heard that song and little Greg heard that song, it means it was bedtime. But we would always want to stay up just a little bit later. So we would beg the parentals, hey, can we stay up and listen to the theme song at least? Like this was a tactic. <laughs> and so Hill Street Blues earlier and then later L.A. Law. Like those those were the two. I had a similar experience with American Gladiators. <laughs> that was my show. That's now the world don't move. I don't know what... That's, no, that's not American Gladiators. <laughs> I think that was Silver Spoons. That was different strokes, man. Singing. Oh, different Come strokes. Come on. It was, it was a joke. This is a podcast. Okay. Are we going to talk about the show right now? <laughs> All right. Maybe we we're should. We're going to cut some of that. <laughs> brother was a lot like that. We finally had to tie him down and run an ocean through his head. She's better now. <laughs> All right. Right at the beginning of the episode... We have Sergeant Phil Esterhaus, who is Sergeant Phil, who is always kind of leading the morning meeting. And I don't know what you all thought about Sergeant Phil leading the morning meeting. I think the guy exuded respect. Oh, yeah. Like people sure. looked up to him and just he, he knew the people in his precinct so well. He knew what drove them. And I just really, really liked that. I really liked uh, what he, he was had, all about. He had kind of that Tom Selleck appeal on screen mm. just i just loved looking at him much more than harrison ford <laughs> i don't know come on get over it but james his collar was buttoned all the way up to his neck yeah it's that's the thing he's he's just not letting you see everything keeping Anything. you guessing this is a this is an old guy he's quoting walt whitman and he's speaking french throughout the the you know these episodes this is is this a believable sergeant to you guys i mean oh i thought so really i mean no all joking aside i thought for me he was one of the more one of my more favorite characters in the show i thought the actor was great but i don't know something didn't fit for me is he more believable than our steve carell look-alike uh officer hunter <laughs> we'll talk about him later <laughs> but anyway i really <laughs> I really liked Sergeant Phil because he always ended the meeting, and apparently this is a Hill Street Blues thing. He always ended the meeting saying the same thing. Let's be careful out there. And I thought yeah. that was uh, yeah. a really nice way to end the morning meeting. So yeah. I, 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 I kind of liked that beginning. Yeah, another part I liked, I mean, it's after the morning meeting, the captain of the precinct, his ex-wife, bolts right in because apparently... The captain is sleeping around, and their son, some stumbled in while he was being romantically involved with this other person. Did you guys pick that up? That's what the ex-wife said. That's what she said. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Michael. Michael, please. There he is. Yeah, I, and I just really like this scene because I felt here was an opportunity. Maybe opportunity is a bad word, but here was an instance where I feel... A lot of other shows would have written the ex-wife as kind of this insane, crazy kind of woman coming in yelling. And she was just very real. And I think this was, it, it kind of took me off guard because it was really of all the shows we watched, this was kind of the first just real kind of woman character that we've seen in a show. And, uh, mm. and that kind of threw me off a little bit. Yeah. Because I just wasn't expecting that. We've seen a couple, but I think to your point, also, this is a divorced couple yeah. in the early 1980s, <laughs> which is not depicted that much on television. And they had a very amiable relationship. But of course, she's still upset about the undergarments being found by their son. And when Frank laughs about it a little bit, what does she say to him? 
What kind of a man invites his son over for the weekend and then allows him to get a look at his father making love to his cookie? I believe was the phrase. <laughs> making love to his cookie. And I, maybe that was one of those phrases that, you know, was quickly in and quickly out. I, I don't know. Yeah, that one, I think it needs to be brought back. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to try it out. I'll let you guys know how it went over. Oh, boy. Good luck with all of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah she was, she, this, this dynamic, I guess, goes on throughout the series. Mm-hmm. And I, apparently... She was not supposed to be a long-standing character, but the the producers liked her, and so they kept her around for a long time. Faye Ferrillo. Mm-hmm. Faye Ferrillo. But yeah, to the point, I think it was very interesting to see this. I mean, in general, I do think the show is trying to shoehorn in a lot of these taboo-type things in the early 80s, which... I think is a credit to the show, but again, it, it, this one, I mean, is she showing up to the precinct waving, you know, lingerie in his office? Okay, sure. It's the 80s! It, it'll happen somewhere. Fun times. So after this, there's a, there's a scene where one of the detectives is uh, given the opportunity, shall we say, to go to dress up as a woman. And Yeah, this was one of the many storylines that involved a purse-snatching... The purse-snatching story. ...crime spree that was going on, and so they set up a sting operation. Yes. One of many in this show. What? To dress up officers as women, kind of a bosom buddies type of feel, and then send them out. Even though they have female officers, they have female officers... They think it's better to do it this way, which is one way. No. Sure. Lucille's out playing poker, Dom. So. Oh, she's the only one. She can't be the only one. But maybe she is. Maybe there part might of have been another one. Well, anyway, so she's, yeah, the, the one female lead is in the poker tournament, as Greg mentioned. Anyway, so the so these, he dresses up as a woman, and uh, the carjacker, of course, confronts. They get out, they scuffle, and they really scuffle. I mean, the. It was a great fight scene. It really was. And it was long mm-hmm. and there was fake blood, very very clearly fake, streaming down the police officer's face. And Yeah, he gets clawed in the face. The carjacker had a had a metal mallet that like a sledgehammer, sledgehammer is like also sledgehammer. what it's called. Could call it a sledgehammer. <laughs> and it did, but it had a short handle. I guess that's still a sledgehammer. Or a regular size handle for a five pound uh, sledgehammer. Was... Did you guys find it strange that he never swung the sledgehammer at the officer? Well, he did once they stopped rolling around. I mean... Because remember, he he grabbed the trash can lid and the guy hit the trash can lid with the sledgehammer a couple times. And then the cop beat the assailant over the head with said trash can lid right so trash can lid beats sledgehammer every time this but but if you rewatch the scene you will see no less than four opportunities for the criminal to swing at the head of the of the cop i'm just saying oh i saw those too well this so, is a work of fiction i and, guess but it was i guess i was disappointed there wasn't you know it was still terrifying <laughs> <laughs> I was I was watching that sledgehammer the entire time. I didn't even notice most of the fight because my eyes were looking at one thing, that sledgehammer, and wondering, because I don't know any of these characters, because that's actually one of the more exciting things about watching these shows we've never seen before. Like, any character could die at any time. True. That's, yeah. So I don't know this guy. I don't know whether Joe Spano, the actor, is deciding to leave the series after this, because I'm not looking at this ahead of time, because I want to go in fresh. So that sledgehammer, I thought, was very effective because when's the hammer going to come down? Oh, yeah. see what you did there. Wow, that was clever. 
I like that one. Yeah. And interestingly, so the, the detective that is in drag is Spano, correct? The show had like a bazillion a trillion, guest star yeah, appearances. Too many. But of the main actors, he was the only person I recognized. Yeah, me too. And I didn't even know where I recognized him from. I had to do some research. And I remember I recognized him from Apollo 13. Yes, he was in that. And I can't even say who his character was in that. He was one of the NASA guys. Yeah, he's a journeyman actor. He's... He's that guy that you you don't know his name, but he's in everything. You know his face. You know he's his a face. real that guy. Yeah, yeah he is a yeah, real that yeah. guy. Anyway, he did a great job. And he was, to the show's credit, they carried over his facial injuries to the next episode. So he's, he's all banged up. Yeah, I was, was wondering nice. if you guys have noticed that. That was that nice, was, yeah. That was nice. That was clever. I like. I appreciated that. Well, keep talking, P, and get a shiv in your white wall. The cat was my friend. I think I'm getting through to him, Mick. This entire show, because it has so many storylines going on, it covers, I don't know, what feels like are real issues. Again, I can't speak to a lot of television cop dramas in the 1970s. The only one that comes to mind is Chips. And <laughs> I feel, again, I haven't seen an episode of Chips, but... Oh, Columbo, Dragon. I don't know why. Its level of seriousness doesn't seem as serious as Hill Street Blues. That is one man's completely uneducated opinion <laughs> about the seriousness of Chips with Eric Estrada versus the seriousness of Hill Street Blues. I could be dead wrong, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will tell us and tell me specifically. Well, it feels like a confident opinion, and that's all that matters to me. <laughs> Confidence is everything, <laughs> as, it, as it is, because I feel like one reason why, why the series and the show, and I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but I really liked it, but one th- reason why it worked for me is because it felt real. Like all of these things, we know that in the real world, these struggles do exist, especially in a big city police department like the one, this nameless city, because they never name what city this is. Anyway, so I, I, appreciated, I appreciated those real issues being focused on. And so that's my thesis. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what about the poker game scene? If there's only one female officer, it is, what's her name? Is it Lucy? Bates? Uh, Bates, Lucy, right? Yeah, Bates. Sergeant yeah. Bates. So she is, uh, and she actually won some awards, I think, for her work on the show. But uh, she has is with her partner, and they're you know working on this poker game that was really I think just for the precinct. It wasn't like a state or an anything. Interdepartmental poker game, right? So all the different precincts got it are playing, and so they you know she ends up losing. They're in a hotel room like, playing, and they lose. The other people leave, and she lays down exhausted after thirty hours of poker playing. And her partner, Joe, who is, you know, also exhausted watching her. And he's, yeah, he sees that she's tired and he's going to do her a little favor. He's going to massage her to help her relax and go to sleep. I guess that was the intent. Part of massaging is kissing and snuggling. Don't push me. That's your mama telling she hurt my back bad last night. Yeah, and then just jumping on top of her. And she very clearly several times says, no, Joe, don't, no, no. And he just continues, oh, I'll go under the shirt because, you know, over the shirt's not going to be relaxing enough. He says this, something like this, right? It's all for her is it's the reason why her. he did it. So, I mean, it was kind of like, oh, my gosh, like this is. I was surprised that they actually dealt with it towards the end of the episode. They revisited. They come back okay. from, the, from the poker game. Yes. They, get, they go into like this basement room. And she's they actually address it. They do. I mean, this this was an attempted assault, right? He 
eventually, though, backs off. It's definitely unwanted sexual advances. It's it crosses the line for sure. And at the end, though, like you're saying, they sort of these are their partners, I think. Right. These are their yeah, they're, they're partners. They are correct. Yeah. So she's she takes it to a place where it's sort of ambiguous. But her point is like she wants to be respected, which I thought was pretty, you know, an important part of her character. It was interesting, though, I think, to not see more of a get away from me. Why did you do that? How could you do that to our partnership reaction? Now, granted, I've never been in a police partnership like that. I don't know what it would feel like, but this is the person that you have to work with every day. You know, it feels great, Dom. You like massages, great. <laughs> Dom, your your point there, I think, is really really good because what I like what Agent Agent Bates, what I like what uh, Sergeant or Lieutenant or Officer Bates does is, as you said, they have this almost ambiguous DTR at the end. But what she says really struck a chord when she says as one of, she's not the only woman on the force, but she's one of the only women on the force. And certainly she recognizes that. And she says something to the extent is, to the extent of, I feel like I'm walking on a wire as in one mistake and I'm going to fall. And that basically talks about the sexism of the time saying, because if a man makes a mistake, oh, well, you know, he gets a second chance and a third chance. But if one of the only female cops makes a mistake, I mean, that that could be it. And that's how she feels. Right. And when her partner does this to her, I agree with you that it was surprising that she wasn't more harsh with him almost. Yeah. But uh, but she does reveal that important thing saying that I'm 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 struggling here because as one of the only women on the force, it's it's a really, really hard thing. And I appreciate her saying that. Yeah. Another storyline was I think this was the fifth or sixth story storyline of the show the restaurant sting operation 18 18th. yeah <laughs> um I, I i don't remember them ever talking about a restaurant sting operation all i know is there's a restaurant and all the cops are working at it serving burgers but towards the end they this whole scheme was to catch crooked officials and one of these South Ferry cops, a different precinct, comes in for a shakedown, and these robbers show up. And I will maintain, this is one of the best shootouts depicted in television history. Oh. Ooh. Yeah, I just dropped the hammer. You think I'm jiving? Oh, there. my. The gun hammer. The sledgehammer. Because a hammer is a part of the gun. <laughs> Isn't it? I don't know. Sure. Uh, but it's... Um, what's it's, a gun? The guys come in. <laughs> it's... It, <laughs> it's a short gunfight. Hundreds of bullets are flown through the air. Most of them miss their targets, which <laughs> is pretty true. I went on and actually looked. Like, it's about at a close distance. And close distance is defined around 6 to 10 feet. Only 35 to 40% of shots fired actually hit their target in actual shootout. Uh, so I was just struck because, you know, most shows, Miami Vice, good God, A-team. Like, these shootouts are long, they're drawn out, it's a source of action. But here was a shootout that just seemed real. It just started, a bunch of bullets flew, and then people are dead. You know, afterwards. I, I mean, I think the shootout probably lasted 30 seconds. Less than that. There was slow motion, too, which kind of... I have no comment. So, I think going back to your point, Greg, about just being... This show about being real. 
Uh, I mean, here was just another instance where, I mean, they had a very, in my opinion, a very real, realistic shootout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the robbers, they died. But our, our good friend... The robbers died. Our good friend, Captain Freedom. Oh, my God. My neutral warp generator failed. <laughs> Should have stopped the bullet. My fault for not checking the batteries. Captain Freedom. So he... he so he, a reminder... Uh, he passed away as well and got shot after... What was a really impressive soliloquy as he as he passed away in Belker's uh, arms? Was it? It was trying <laughs> to be. I'm eternal. I live in the alley cats and the buses in the streets. <laughs> I guess uh, this was a recurring character for a few episodes this season. Yeah. And I, I did a little research, and it was a character lifted from a separate screenplay that uh, one of the writers had shown to the creator, and he liked it so much that he wanted to use it for for this, I guess, wow. character. Well, I question that writer's decision. So this is a guy who thinks he's actually a superhero. <laughs> and he's played by Dennis Duggan. Did you all recognize Dennis Duggan? I did not. Uh, he's another that guy. I don't he know is, what I recognize uh, him from, but I recognize he's him. He's in a bunch of Adam Sandler movies, actually. He uh, oh, In Happy Gilmore, he's the leader of the PGA Tour who gives Happy Gilmore the jacket at the end, but then Shooter McGavin takes it and runs away with him. Oh, that's uh, right. He's the guy yep. who gives the jacket to Happy. Okay. Or is about to, and then yeah. Shooter McGavin gets his butt kicked by the giant fella who <laughs> terrified me for several years after seeing that movie. Oh, my gosh. Well, what about the... Uh, so, uh, I guess... Greg, you said it's a, a common way that the show ends with the captain and the public defender. Gosh, I can't remember her captain name. Captain Ferrillo and Joyce jo- Davenport. Joyce, Joyce Davenport. Yeah. yeah, so she's a super steamy supermodel public defender. And I guess she and the captain have a secret relationship. So at, at work, you know, she's making this, you know, do you have lunch? Do you want to have lunch with me? How about a hot lunch at the whatever hotel? <laughs> <laughs> and the captain's like, yeah, hot lunch. And so they end up, you know, going to. He actually shows up in the restaurant and looking for. And the it's the, the worst impression I've ever heard. <laughs> God, lunch sounds good. And uh, shows up to eat, and of course she's not there. But he's she's left a note, and he you know come up to the room. Mm. They do the deed. Apparently, it seems like, or maybe just more massaging. I don't know. Well, they're uh, noshing afterwards. <laughs> eating. They're eating. In Sorry. The and then he makes this line. You're tough. Mm-hmm. But you give good sucker. Watch it. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I had to look that G-R-E word up. Uh, I wasn't familiar with that one. <laughs> but uh, it means comfort and assistance. Uh, you know, ah, that's another time. way to say it. She's a real helper. <laughs> a real helper. But, you know, you just can't... In the case against crime. <laughs> the double... What is, is that a double entendre? Or it's something. Mm, it's something. But, well, and then uh, we take it all the way to the end. And then they're in the action. bathtub talking about their day. So this whole episode takes place in a day, basically. It's crazy. Uh, which I don't know how that's possible. And then it just ends. It yep. just ends. There's no... In the bathtub. Mm-hmm. There's no music to take you out. I mean, I was just... Oh, it's over. Thank God. But I just <laughs> thought that doesn't seem like an effective way to end the show. Very creative, though, for the time. It's the most effective way, James, because then after it ended and said executive producer that it did. Da, 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 oh, da, da, da. I think I was probably asleep by that point. in time. So. <laughs> but in, in true 80s spirit, did you catch a little bit of chest hair? 
off of the main guy of the oh. of the episode. Oh, there's yeah, always a bit course. in the 80s. How could you not? Yeah. And it makes me, I mean, it does make me feel a little bit more confident in myself. <laughs> I feel a lot more confident. <laughs> no comment. All right. <laughs> All right. What about the worst episode? What is a big time garment manufacturer like yourself doing buying eight ounces of Columbia Flink? Sure. I got a 19-year-old wife. She goes through this stuff like breathless. Oh, Ugh. the worst episode. All right. All right, Greg, you going to do this one in 90 seconds? Sure. I only have four stories for this one. On to, on to the worst episode of Mouse and Men. Worst episode is rated by one particular website. Anyway, so there's this murder right off the bat. It's public defender Pamela uh, Gilliam. She's shot to death. She's African-American, which brings a racial discussion to this episode. So story number one, Officer Bobby Hill is chosen as the vice president of the Black Police Officers Union. He just wants to be a regular guy, but it begins to cause tension between him and his partner, Renko. Story two, if you're worried, if you're worried about drugs, guess what, guys? What? It's time for a sting operation. Hello. Officers, <laughs> officers Neil Washington and J.D. LaRue dress as fashionistas, and they catch Eddie Sims dealing cocaine. They cut him a deal with his lawyer, this Alan Wattell character, to get info on the state's largest PCP lab. Story number three. The still wounded Officer Goldblum, you remember who got beaten up after the aforementioned good old-fashioned cross-dressing, purse-stealing, undercover sting operation? Oh. So, so that guy. He's looking into a landlord who who's trying to create really crappy conditions in his building to get rid of his tenants who are benefiting from rent control. And finally, story four, the main story, probably say, the murder of public defender Pamela Gilliam. Gilliam. This shakes up Joyce Davenport because she is also a public defender. Officer Howard Hunter heads down to what appears to be the projects to find the murderer. They frisk down all of these African-American young men. One tries to run to his car to escape, but he stopped. He's got the murder weapon in his trunk. This guy is offered a deal to not get first-degree murder. He gives up the name, and they arrest a different guy for the murder of the public defender. Davenport and Ferrillo, at the end of the episode, like usual, are chatting, uh, but it's a very somber chat because of the death of Davenport's friend. Hey, that seemed like less time, right? Doggone it, Webster. I know morphine addicts that can type faster than that. Move over. Uh, that had to be 90 oh, seconds. Maybe. I'm sorry. My soul has been drained. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so the, so the opening of this worst episode, I actually liked better than the opus, opening of the previous episode best episode there's a murder and it's a character that i don't think we know i don't know if she, if she existed before but the cops are on the scene and uh the problem i had with it was there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of talking and they're talking so fast and i had just burned through like five episodes in a row of, of Shit's creek so my mind was in a non-intellectual place to decode what was happening so i had to actually rewind it and go back but i i really i thought it was a strong opening when i transition fully in did you guys agree or disagree with that uh strong opening seems a little strong <laughs> very clever <laughs> the the first episode the best episode we forgot to mention but they had this is one of the first shows to use the handheld cam effect so it's shaking and it's sort of mm-hmm. like you're in there and it's documentary style almost and i th- i think i didn't like that in that first episode 
that might be why. Well, I think they used it in the next and this the worst episode too. They did, I mean, but not in the opening. A... In the opening, I was like too much. But anyway, personal preference. Of course. So after the roll call, they start getting into other storylines, and one of the storylines involves Edward James almost General Amidala. General what? <laughs> Amidala from BSG um, Battlestar Galactica. Amidala. You've never seen Battlestar Galactica. Listen to what you're saying, <laughs> General Amidala. Amidala. No. Adama. Amidala is a queen from Star Wars, you idiot. (laughs) How could you? And the show has reached a new low. (laughs) Oh, cut that. Cut that. No, that is staying in. Oh, yeah, Adama. That's right, Adama. Anyway, go on. Anyway. Well, I failed to see what's so funny, mister. I'm I'm sorry. I was, when he came on, I mean, one, just, again, these consistent guest starring roles of pretty famous and recognizable actors. But I assume this is, he's a lawyer in this, or he's a law student. Law student, yeah. And this is probably before he graduates and heads down to Miami to lead Mm -hmm. the Miami Vice precinct. I'm just assuming these are the same universe. He also looks like a low-ret Geraldo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He was heading to Capone's vault after this episode was filmed. (laughs) So, so yeah, so he claims this whole landlord is mistreating his tenants. And then all of a sudden, there is this crazy guy talking about lizard, throwing shit around and just tearing it up. And then the soup Nazi police officer (laughs) (laughs) jumps on top of him. What was the point of that scene? I think it gets the little payoff at the end because before Officer Belko jumps on him, there's a little growl. Pounce! Yeah. And later in the episode, we have a little... Well, that's true. It is revisited. So in the other storyline of the drug dealing textile manufacturing sting operation, Mm -hmm. what's his name from Star Trek shows up? Commander Commander Riker. William T. Riker. Commander Riker shows up and he's a cocaine dealer. Obviously. Yeah. So he gets caught. He goes on the run. How does he get caught, James? And as he's trying to get into his car outside, he hears this (laughs) slight growl behind him. And then the soup Nazi jumps on top of him and and takes him out. Pounce. I mean, it was a true Spider-Man growl pounce. I I love it how they all act casually. Like, at first I was worried because Commander Riker's getting away. And everybody's like, nah, it's fine. Belko's out there. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And then, I'm not going to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I, i'm surprised Riker didn't know it was a sting if he would have just sort of looked around in the office of the textile mm-hmm. there's donut boxes everywhere i don't know why they didn't catch that i didn't notice but those. just boxes, boxes why is that boxes, a giveaway boxes yeah next time Riker. missed opportunity wait missed opportunity Not, that doesn't make sense <laughs> let's cut that uh, <laughs> we have so much to cut from this episode anyway Hey, you can burn them in the street for all I care. I wouldn't wrap a sick dog in those schmatters. So, <laughs> uh, huh. so then Commander Riker is back at the station, and his lawyer comes in. And did anyone recognize the lawyer? Of course, of course, none other than Jeffrey Tambor, arrested George yeah. Oscar Bluth, Bluth <laughs> George Senior, Bluth among Senior. many other things. 
<laughs> and he is just a whistling and a oh, he's just, a horn dog. A big oh, a big walking pile of chauvinism. How you say sexist? Wouldn't mind a one night stand with that, huh? Nice pillow. <laughs> and uh, oh man. And then he goes, he asks the, he's trying to cut a deal with the officers about, you know, pleading down to if Riker names his, uh, the big, the big fish. PCP lab. They follow him to a bathroom. They, they follow him to the bathroom and he urinates and then he comes out, doesn't wash his hands clearly, but goes in for the handshake yeah. and whoa, the most awkward five seconds of the show mm-hmm. right there. Damn, bladder infection is killing me. Leastwise, I hope it's bladder, because if it's prostate again, I... No, I'm not going to shake your hands. I think Jeffrey Tambor in this episode was so goofy, even if he did wash his hands, they wouldn't shake them. (laughs) (laughs) Quite possibly. And one oh one thing we forgot to talk about is, uh, before that bathroom scene, Sergeant Belko is in the restaurant, and uh, he's sitting next... He's sitting at the bar, at the diner, and... He is inserting food into his front pocket. The the other cop looks and says, what are you doing? Apparently, he's been feeding a mouse, carrying a mouse around. Why wouldn't you? In his front pocket. Mouse in the pocket. Hey, oh, you like smoked fish, and you little guy. Daddy, it's your protein going very, very big and very, very good for you. His name is Mickey. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, my question is, how did that mouse survive all of those jumping lunges on the criminals throughout the episode earlier unfortunately maybe he was softened up from all that because somebody walks by gives a good slap on the on the shoulder and mouse is killed that way apparently right in the pocket yeah in the right, pocket, right pocket. In. And, and the guy hands him a napkin Do you see that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah that silly. That was uh, thus the title of the episode of Mouse and Men. I feel like they created the title of this episode and then they've been like, oh crap, we've been only talking about men. Forgot the mouse. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I thought I thought they probably thought of it backwards that they're like, oh, we, I think this is a really funny mouse gag. Could it be that yeah. Mickey is a recurring character? Mickey. Not anymore. Yeah, that, the mouse's name is Mickey. <laughs> and then, oh, and the tie-in with the bathroom is then when Jeffrey Tambor goes into the bathroom, they're in there flushing the mouse down the toilet for <laughs> oh, his yeah. funeral. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. That's that's a first for me. I'm not a pet enthusiast. Did you notice? When it comes to... Oh, sorry. Did you, <laughs> did you notice that Jeffrey Tambor, while he was peeing, was whistling Oh, Danny Boy? I did not catch that. No. <laughs> I assume. <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of important stuff that's happening in the show. We'll talk about it more in the overall in the overall did we like the episode or not. But as like every episode, we end with Davenport, the public defender, and Captain Furlow talking. But this time they're talking uh, about the serious business of the murder of one of Davenport's colleagues. I just have to say that the actress Veronica Hamill, when she is when she's emotional and, and incredibly struck by the death of her colleague, I think it's some really good acting. I think the way that she portrays mm-hmm. Davenport in this particular situation is is really really impressive. I mean, she strikes that right chord. She's not overacting. It's so easy to overact to blubber, but I think. I think she just really hits that sweet spot of true pain, true tragedy. And so I really, really liked those scenes toward the end when our public defender friend, Joyce Davenport, is remembering her friend who was just, in essence, assassinated. Yeah. I mean, she was good. I mean, I think most of the actors in the show were pretty good. Yeah. Agreed. 
Well, well, should we talk about the series overall? Let's do. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. Let's do. Our objective is the Hodge Street Playground. Now, this is a formidable playground, but uh, by no means an impregnable one. So, I'm curious, what did you guys know of this show before we watched it? Well, I actually, I didn't know very much until college, actually. I was in a, a class, a media criticism class, and uh, this episode, or this show was talked about, and, and a, a couple episodes were shown as examples of how media changed, does art reflect life, and, and the instructor, who was probably in college when this show was first run, pointed to a lot of the issues with sexism and racism and the different ways in which it tackled real issues that were now when we look at it kind of it's they're tropey but her point was i think that it invented this approach mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so how much of your commentary tonight did you just straight up lift from that college class uh zero well, potentially all. I don't remember. Except that last part. <laughs> I don't well, Greg, we know that you know about the theme yep, song. But because I went to bed at 9.02 every night, then <laughs> my knowledge beyond, let's, uh, let's be careful out there, do, do, do. It's really, really limited. Well, my bar for this show mm -hmm. was low. Really? The lowest that it's been because I had never heard of this show in my life, which was why I was so shocked when you guys brought this up. And good God, this show is horrific. No. <laughs> it is the worst show I have ever seen in my life. No. I could not wait for this to be over. James. I was watching the clock. I My eyes did an entire 360 in my head. I was so bored. I don't think that's possible. And I was dreading absolutely dreading and putting it off as long as I could of watching it again because I think it goes out question I'm being so committed I watched these terrible shows <laughs> multiple times so that I could be prepared as possible yes and I will say upon viewing it the second time significantly better oh really okay to the point I would say this could be one of the best shows we've <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I'm feeling destabilized. What do you think for real? Well, I will say a lot of crazy things right now. <laughs> lots of words coming out of your mouth. <laughs> but I'm going to say, I'm going to say, well, first off, Greg, I'm going to just call into question your ability to pick the best and the worst episode. Because the worst episode I agree. was by far the best episode of the, the two. Better. And the yeah. best worst episode we have watched this season for us. <laughs> I, I hold think... on before before you move on. Hold on, hold your thought. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And by the way, just so you know, as Dom explained at the beginning of this podcast, we use the internet, and I used one particular website that had that had this episode as the lowest rated one with almost fifty three voters. James and Dom. <laughs> A certain internet 50, movie three. database. No, not, it was not IMDb. Oh, it was a different one. Okay. And and after I watched them both, I got halfway through the worst episode, and I was thinking, this is not a bad episode at all. No. This is a very good episode. As in, they're both really good episodes. I thought when our two our two detectives were dressed up 
at this textile fashion place and there was some goofiness right. going on with the coke deal i thought it was going to go down a goofy road it did not and i mean aside from the mouse yeah i thought you got it i thought you got it backwards when captain freedom I showed up too. in the best episode i was just like oh this, this has to be the worst episode. greg must have got this wrong this was yeah. the worst because that is a worst episode type of plot device just this absurdity to it definitely but no i thought it was it was so the storyline the the storylines were compelling the storylines were i mean greg you've been saying this all along just very real i think it's i think this show more than anything else stands the test of time all of the issues that this show dealt with and talked about are absolutely still relevant today and i don't i don't think that's true for any other show there's no campiness involved there's some uh, i mean other than the hairstyles and, and outfits yeah. there's really nothing in this show that really is dated even when you say that even the stuff that doesn't look well like 40 years later it's just like oh that's not a great look at all well that's probably what people were doing in 1981 and 1982 that's how people were yeah. talking in 1982 and, 80, and 1983 and, and times like that yeah and if you are as many many americans were just a suburban mom and a suburban dad watching this at 9 p.m on nbc why well because you either can watch this or dynasty on abc or another show on cbs because you only had three shows only three channels to watch <laughs> if you're watching this this, if you're just living in a, in a house in the suburbs, this brings a whole whole raft of very, very real issues like rent control. If you're living in the suburbs of Milwaukee, you know nothing of what rent control is and how uh, Mr. Sosa is going to make his building deteriorate to a point where, since he can't evict his tenants, he is going to make them want to leave because conditions are so bad. Like, you're, you don't know anything about that at all if you are just a suburban American. And so that's why when I say this show is real, it covers so many things that were real and it brings them to an audience a mass audience because this was a wildly popular show this is a top 15 show top 10 show of the 1980s to a, a wide audience of people greg you bring up mr sosa he was in the worst episode he was in this whole the whole rent control you know landlord type storyline he i think he was the best villain we've watched no i mean Think of all the other shows. You have Carr from Night Rider. Yes, that's a better villain. <laughs> Ivan in also a better villain. No, Come on. Ivan is so over the top. It's so cliche. Murdoch from MacGyver. Love Murdoch. Do not you have hate on the Murdoch. Uncle Uncle Buckle Up Mafia <laughs> okay. guy from the 18th. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> you have James Brown, the alien. <laughs> James Brown. James was Brown not wasn't the villain. A villain was I he? mean, all of those characters. All of those other villains in the other shows were stereotypical, over-the-top, campy, very flaccid-type villains. No. This guy, who was a real-life Goomba, I mean, he was from Super Mario Brothers. You take a Goomba out of Super Mario, put him in real life, that's who no, Mr. No, Sosa no. was. He was re he was real. He was down to earth. There was nothing over the top about him. Like this, this was the first villain that I could I could imagine a human being really being like. Well, that. sure. And that's what makes it the best. Now, how can you be both straight out of Super Mario Brothers and not over the top? That makes no just sense. Just in how he looked. He just didn't really have a neck, and he was just generally mushroom-shaped. That's all I mean about the no, Goomba. No, the, the Roadrunner Coyote episode for Magnum P.I., that Goomba from the actual Mafia 
fictionalized. He's the best villain, even though he's from the worst episode. Bing, bang, boom! <laughs> <laughs> okay, th- th- he's subtle, <laughs> and maybe that's what you like about it, that it's believable he's very in, muted. in some kind of way. This, I, I just think he's the first... And I think this is true for a lot of the characters. There was nothing cliche about it. What? There, there, there were, there was he's exactly cliche. He's a, he's a, no. he's a ruffian landlord. He comes down the hall with his two goons behind him. That's not real. Come on. In his dialogue, in the way he presents himself, it's just, it's so much more real than than anything we've watched. I'm uh, looking for Mr. Sosa. We're all Sosa. What do you want? How could this have been considered the worst episode? Like, I, I thought it handled humor better than the best episode. I thought it handled race issues better than any other show that we've watched. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Like, I like when you talk about some, again, I, I hate using the word real so much, but when the police officers go and they round up all of these African-American fellows, they line them up on the fence and they pretty much do a whole stop and frisk thing. That's a real issue. And that's an issue that we're very aware of today. And I'm watching this happen from February of 1982. And I'm watching this. I'm like, wow, this is this definitely can connect to stuff that happened today. The idea that Officer Hill is elected the vice president of the Black Officers Union. And that becomes like a struggle now that he has a position in a black organization as a leader within this black organization that's causing tension between his partner who admittedly said, Hey, I've told some off color jokes before. And he's like, ah, it's not the jokes. And he's like, actually it is the jokes knock off the racist jokes, Mm -hmm. dude. Mm -hmm. And that's his partner. Mm -hmm. Right. And they've been together. And so it brings, it opens up a lot of different lines of thinking. It opens up a lot of different conversations potentially. So like I said, this idea of the worst episode about midway through, I said, this is not a bad episode. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to sum up, like one of the reasons why I, I think this is one of the best shows that we've watched so far is that there was nothing about it that was overly dramatic. Like all of the drama that was packed in was just because they packed in so many different storylines. But each storyline, I think, was dealt in a very realistic, true to life format. And that is not true for any other show that we've watched. And that goes for Mr. Sosa as well. Minus the mouse in the pocket. And the jumping well, from sure. ledges on top of people. Mouse! <laughs> well, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take five second bits out of the show and therefore say, Oh, the whole thing is. And like the that. person that thinks he's a superhero. Okay, we'll stop with that one. How about that? Totally real. So you're telling me that because of those little bits, that puts it on par with the uh, with all the other shows that we've watched. It is not as you say, in my opinion. It is elevated from the other shows. I agree with that. But this this show definitely is different. There's a qualitative difference to this show compared to the other shows. It's a genre difference too. And we had talked about this before we chose this. They're all crime fightings, but come on, Knight Rider versus Hill Street Blues. They're both going after bad guys, but right. there is a difference between them. They were on at the same time. Yeah. They were fighting bad guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know compared to Miami Vice. And I didn't love Miami Vice, but the difference is Miami Vice, I could follow the show and the the acting as we talked about. I think we we all agreed there is some campiness there, but there is also some good acting in Miami Vice. 
this was too full for me. I, you know, there's some intellectual heavy topics, but again, they, I felt like I was being shoehorned too much uh, for me to process all at the same time. And, you know, I think there's a, that's a strategy, but I think, I think it was not a very popular show. People did not like this show. In the first season. Not for seven seasons. In the seasons. first season, they didn't the like it. Well, no, at first. I'm talking about at yeah. first. It was, it was the, at the time, it was the lowest rated show to be green lighted for a second season. So I think it, it got better and people adjusted to it. But at first it was, too, I think there was too different from other similar genre shows. Well, Dom, what made it so different? Well, I mean, I think upon watching this show, I went and looked and saw that this is generally considered, of all police shows, the most influential police show ever. Arguably. Of all time. Arguably. I mean, there is so much about this show that we've been talking about that's so different from anything that had ever existed. This show is what birthed L.A. Law, NYPD Blue. Law and Order. The Shield. Law and Order. I mean... Footloose. This show is the Goonies. <laughs> is the blueprint for it. Like you talked about it before, and I didn't really like it, but the hand cam where it was just kind of shaky, yeah. that was relatively new. Like no, no show really did that. Yeah. And I do think, even though I didn't like it, I felt that it helped in the portrayal of trying to make this show seem more gritty, to seem more real. The fight scenes, the shootouts were real, the storylines. Having the multiple storylines is something that is copied a lot. You know, most cop shows, or most, think of the ones we've watched, Knight Rider, The A-Team, Miami Vice, or before it, Chips, Kojak, Columbo, they all follow a detective or a, like, there's a centralized character that follow along. Yeah. And this was the first to just have this ensemble kind of cast right. that you see in so many other police shows. The acting was really great. The guy that played the sergeant, Michael Conrad, who actually died during the fourth season. Oh. I thought he was one of the best he was good. actors. He was very good. In the show. Yeah. Strong female characters. Yes. But the ensemble no no you but, know, but I mean there was just so many aspects it's of It's too show. much. It's Game of Thrones in T V. It's too much. I agree with everything you're saying. What I think is it did pave the way for these other shows that have a little bit trimmed ensemble cast. And so it's I think it swung way far over and it did a really good job. It won a ton of awards, obviously. But this is just taste now. It was too, there's too many storylines and too many characters yeah. to follow for me. Well, it was the reason why after when I watched the first time, I thought this show was horrible and it was the worst <laughs> thing I'd ever watched because I wasn't ready to be thrown into the deep end with all of the storylines. Like I just I wasn't I didn't know that, that that's what it was going to be. I was getting ready for to, for it to be similar to all the other shows that we've watched and I wasn't ready for it and I kind of thought each story on its own wasn't a home run and you know having it all packed in kind of makes it seem lamer because it's like oh you're just using all of these stories as like a crutch but again when I watched it the second time complete 180 opinion that's interesting well you do all the characters uh watching these episodes the first two times i was writing furiously all right the names it was so hard i had to look up names on imdb of the names of the not the actor but the character name because 
because it was so hard to follow along. James, I only watched it the one time, but if I watched it again the second time, yeah. I would be able to follow so much because then I would recognize people. Oh, he's the guy from the morning meeting who said blah, 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 blah. And that makes much more sense, which what happened 30 minutes later. Oh, I didn't even bother writing names. My names I wrote down were Shaft, <laughs> Joe Namath, Soup Nazi, Geraldo, Apollo 13, <laughs> Captain and Tennille. I don't even remember who that was referencing. Uh. Star Trek guy. <laughs> oh, and Joyce Davenport. I just called her Bath Lady for the entire show. Nice. <laughs> Because, yeah, because there's no way you could keep up the first time. Even the second time, I didn't catch all of their names, but... Yeah, it's a lot to sift through. Did you all like Captain Freedom? That seemed to be the, the campy part. That of... was so... It was so stupid. I didn't like him. How could anybody like him? When he was dying, I wrote my question in my notes. Is this supposed to be touching? Yeah, it was weird. Because I couldn't wait. Yeah. For him to the only uh, the only thing that it could be is they built his arc up before this somehow in in ways that that would have wanted you to care more. But it you know he was in three episodes before this, I believe. Yeah. Oh, but geez. I mean, clearly he was delusional though. He thought he was a superhero, and he's dying there. And and the cop says, you know, you know, final thoughts, <laughs> I guess, before you die. <laughs> he says, my spirit will live on. It's you know what I'm fighting for. It's all gonna live on forever and you know he's he's i think probably has a genuine mental illness he's gonna take me on a field trip to venus well yeah would you say it's an accurate depiction of some kind of delusion i mean it well it does it's very very rare but it can happen the the best delusion out there is this delusion of grandeur where you think you're super human literally you know, that you can't die, you're immortal, bigger, bulletproof, that kind of thing. But it is definitely a sign of, of certain disorders. It could be a personality disorder or it could be a psychotic process like what would happen in schizophrenia or bipolar. But you could just have a delusional disorder and believe that you have special powers or, or are gifted in certain ways and not have some of the other hallucinations, which is what this guy seemed to have. So it's, it's entirely possible. Well, I think Dennis Duggan did a nice job portraying Captain Freedom. And on his IMDb yeah. profile as we wrap up this episode, he has his favorite quote, which is, Audiences that go see me don't want a message. They don't want my soul exposed or my life view. They just want to laugh. And I thought, well, Captain Freedom was a little goofy. And I laughed a little bit. <laughs> Mission accomplished. And then I cried a little you bit. You laughed at Captain Freedom? Not at the death scene, probably. No. What's not believable is the precinct would not take him in, no, I don't think. So. But Well, there were so many people in that precinct, <laughs> I don't think they could keep it anybody. Packed. Lizard Man was <laughs> nearby. It was crazy. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> All right, let's talk about our award, shall we? Don't squeeze it so hard. It won't fit if I don't. Just be gentle. It's as stiff as a board. Yes, it's time for the awards, the TV yearbook awards. So just like your high school yearbook had those superlatives in the back that said most likely to become a doctor, most likely to become a dentist, most likely to become a urologist. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't get through that. What? What would I it take? I can't believe they gave it to Stephen. For someone to be voted... Most likely to become a urologist. Are you playing with the urinal like, cakes again? <laughs> Someone with delusion of grandeur? Yeah. Snip. Don't worry, we're going to snip all of this. <laughs> anyway. Well, one of the yeah. awards we give out 
is the Extra Mile Award. So to make it in Hollywood, it's always really tough. You gotta be, you gotta toe the line and become an extra. And this show had a plethora. Jefe, what is a plethora? Of extras, people in the background not doing a whole lot. And so we like to give a little shout out to those individuals who went a little above and beyond to put that exclamation point on their moment on screen. And my Extra Mile Award is going to go not to Mr. Sosa, but to one of his goons behind him. Because Mr. Sosa needed a little bit more oomph. He had two thugs with him. And one thug decided, I need to stand out. And he went through the costume bin and found a hat (laughs) that absolutely resembled Tweedledum from Alice in Wonderland. It didn't really add to his... What word am I trying to think of? Persona? Yeah, let's go with that. Uh, But it made him stand out, and I'll give him props Mm -hmm. for that. I thought you were going to choose at the beginning of episode one when you saw uh, Zach Galifianakis in the audience of the morning meeting. I missed that. I missed that. Didn't didn't even see him. That's why he's not getting the award. He did not do that extra to get get noticed. He was just well-bearded. Anyway, my award is also related to Mr. Sosa, and it's the Intimidation Award. And James, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about when chatting about Mr. Sosa being like a real like villain. He's only on screen for two minutes, less than two minutes, it feels. Yeah. But when the police officer is there in the building trying to figure out what to do about this slumlord who is trying to evict all of his people without actually evicting them, Mr. Sosa is not intimidated at all by this police officer. In fact, this police officer is looking at Mr. Sosa and his two goons, one of which is wearing a Tweedle. I did not notice that hat at all, but... The Tweedledum uh, hat escaped me. How did you not notice the hat? It's a look. I'll go back and check it out. But this intimidation award <laughs> oh, goes man. to him because it was only two minutes, but I thought it was really, really well done to establish him as uh, an intimidator. So that's who gets my award. Yeah. You guys, I cannot mm-hmm. believe it. You know, he, he's the, he's breaking codes. It's not like homicide or child abuse. But anyway, he was a good this actor. This is where people are living, Dom. That's uh, important. I'm not saying it's not important. <laughs> An old lady broke her hip. She almost broke her other hip. I'm just hip. saying. I don't think the he was the best villain. elevator is out hey, of order. Hey, hey. <laughs> landlords. <laughs> I don't think he was the best villain in the episode. He's putting glue in mailboxes so they can't get their mail. Geraldo is doing secret <laughs> undercover investigate. You know what we should do? You know what I think the solution for Hill Street Blues are? I do not. Oh, come on. You're killing me. Let me tell you about the smells women love, Neil. We should run a sting operation. There oh, sting oh. operation. <laughs> anyway, Dom, what's your oh, award? Okay, anyway, well, I have an award. My award is the most likely to end up on a registry award, and that's for Jeff Tamper's <laughs> lawyer character who's drooling and remarking and looking up and down every woman in the precinct. And, you know, it is kind of a, a bittersweet reality about his, <laughs> you know. This award is oddly prophetic of Tamper's real life. A foreshadowing for his fall from grace. Sad. He's a very talented comedian, and sad to know that he's, you know, actually that's not so far from apparently some things he's been accused of. I mean, he's and he's hitting yeah. on Farillo's ex-wife, Faye. Yeah. All up on. He's hitting on. He makes passes at the captain's yeah. ex-wife, the captain's 
current right. girlfriend, and he even makes comments about the dead lady from yeah. the beginning. Just a shame about Tam Gillian. Hell of a bright girl. What a bod. Legs all the way up to his... Oh, man, that was so uncomfortable Ooh. that he kept talking about how tight the clothing was on, on this because he knew he's he's a lawyer so he knew this other lawyer but i guess later in the episodes yeah. he's becomes a mainstay character and he becomes a judge a creepy i'm sure sexist judge well what else anything else to say about these two episodes no let's no. move on well <laughs> gentlemen we've come to the end of our first season Woot. on the tv yearbook focused on 1980s crime fighting shows so listeners check us out on facebook or twitter at the TV yearbook, and please let us know what you liked and what you'd like to see in future episodes of the TV yearbook. And since you obviously have extra time on your hands or you wouldn't be listening to us, please rate our show. How do you do that? I'm not sure, but you probably have rated other things. There's You'll a figure way. it out. Speaking of ratings, Greg, we haven't heard about your soda. Oh, I finished it. Yeah, your Italiana blood navel orange. Niner. I don't know what you said <laughs> the villa italia italian blood orange soda was finished i don't know how long we've been recording hours too ago long. <laughs> too long <laughs> hill street blues it's such a long episode because there's so many things so here's the deal with this first off it was a big bottle so i just poured half of it into this cup right here with some ice cubed we already discussed that, but I will say, first off, the the taste was was quite nice. Not just because of the sugar, but because this is infused with blood orange extract. Oh. Now, don't let the blood concern you. Oh. It's not actual blood, because mm. the type of orange is called a blood orange. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. Let's deal mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so because this is infused with I blood... I didn't know that this was something we were struggling with understanding. I didn't either. But... You gave me a look. <laughs> so it was very effervescent it didn't taste like orange juice it was kind of a blend between champagne and mimosas and was it champagne greg <laughs> did you put champagne in your blood orange italian villa soda i drink craft sodas <laughs> where does this rank of all the craft sodas i still like you the... had virgil's which was we know was garbage. that's gonna be at the bottom obviously forever you had beet yeah. sugar last time Money bags was oh, one. Money bags. Money bags. Delightful. I don't remember your other ones. Though. I'm sure someone on Twitter will uh, get that list so everyone can see what the six <laughs> beverages I've had in season one of the TV yearbook. Our Twitter team will work on it. But I would say this is not as good as Peace Tree Root Beer oh, like yeah. we had last time. But I will say this is pretty good. Next time I'm going to try a different <laughs> Italian blood orange soda and I'll be able to compare those side by side. Wow. I'm shocked there's more than one. No, you're not. Come on now. I didn't know Italy was so prone to make orange well, you know, sodas. Italy, Blood orange. Florida, California, orange. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know so... what that means. <laughs> well, this is where our strong ending will yeah, come. Yeah, have we thought of that yet, Dom? Thus concludes the TV yearbook. Right now. Season one. Oh. And hey, hey, let's be real, real careful out here.